If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with a spoiler review of Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, and I don't do spoiler reviews for every movie, and I promise I'm not doing one just to sort of dunk on this one. If you go back and look at my non-spoiler review, you'll see that I was actually somewhat mixed on this, but the reason I wanted to kind of take a deeper dive is I think that some of the misses in this movie are interesting misses, and I want to kind of break down my thoughts on why they did certain things the way that they did. Also, maybe expound upon a few things that I enjoyed as well. But this isn't really just to sit here and, and, and sort of kvetch about this movie uh, for however long this is going to go. It really is to sort of ask questions and compare notes in a weird way with you and see what you thought about some of the beats in this film. And let's start at the very beginning of the movie where we have this sort of sit-down luncheon scene between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And I think that this is why a really shiny example of why these two should have had their own film series. And I know a lot of people say like, well, isn't that what this movie is? Yes and no. I mean, I feel like it's kind of dominated by the Dumbledore Grindelwald story at this point, but you still do have to include all these other characters. And these two are really the most interesting missed opportunities, I think, in the whole franchise. If you just confined it to these two, you could basically explore the fact that Dumbledore is basically a reformed kind of wizard Hitler who unwittingly set in his youth this person that he loved down a dark path that he now has to pull that person away from. If we could see more of that interaction between those characters, if we could get an even deeper history between these two, and I think that Mass Mickelson, especially because this was his first film in the franchise, did a great job at communicating subtly, and we'll get to that in a second, this past relationship between him and Dumbledore. If you could go even deeper into that without having to cut away to characters that I think the movie doesn't even really seem that interested in, I think you could have had a great series of films that doesn't have to share real estate with the Fantastic Beast stuff. And let's talk a little bit about Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship, because it was established long ago, before these movies even existed, that Albus Dumbledore is gay, that he had a relationship with Grindelwald in their youth, and that their entire past is rooted in this very special time they shared together, where they fell in love with each other. And if you want to talk about representation, I mean, Dumbledore is a pretty good character to have as part of the fictional LGBTQ plus community. It's just that the movies featuring Dumbledore don't really want to embrace that fully, including this one. Yes, we get the most explicit mention of their relationship. We have them saying, we fell in love with each other and I loved you. But they are in snippets that prove to be easily cuttable for the Chinese market. And this is something that we see more and more. It seems 
seems to me, and it's not just Warner Brothers, I'm talking Warner Brothers, Disney, every studio that's making movies right now is pulling back on a lot of the representation, in particular LGBTQ plus representation in their big tentpole films, because they know that if they go too far over the line, so to speak, that the movie is going to get banned in China, which has a hardline policy against LGBTQ plus content in any Chinese media and especially in any media that they're bringing in from other countries. And so you have this game where you have these two characters whose entire backstory is rooted in the fact that they were deeply in love with each other, and yet they have to dance around that in their own movie, basically in order to placate one major market. And I don't really see any other explanation why they're kind of tiptoeing around this than worrying about it being banned in other markets. But even if you're a Warner Brothers executive, look, The Dark Knight didn't play in China. Joker didn't play in China. The first Suicide Suicide Squad movie didn't play in China, and those were all big financial successes. So it is not a market that is required for you to have a box office success. So if this franchise continues, and that's another thing we're also going to talk about toward the end here, I really hope that they stop kind of tiptoeing around this and actually depict this relationship that is so crucial to both of what are becoming the main characters in these movies. Because I think that self-censorship in the service of one market that, quite frankly, and increasingly so, doesn't even really want to bring in movies from the United States to play at all is a really, really short-sighted decision. So we go from this first scene with Dumbledore and Grindelwald to some fantastic beasts. We meet Newt Scamander. He's out in the jungle. We see this mystical creature who's giving birth the joy of life. Yes, this really is fantastic beasts and how to kill them. Because just right away, we're cutting down these beautiful creatures. And in a really brutal fashion, like we see this mother who has been giving birth to these two twin calves, just advatacadavered in like slow motion. And that's already sad enough. I mean, that's like an on-screen Bambi's mom death. And then Newt runs away and then crawls back to the dying mother so that we as an audience can witness her pain-filled last dying breaths. And right on the back of that, we have the little calf that you think like, well, at least the baby survived. The calf goes to Grindelwald, who's like petting it and saying, oh, what a pretty little creature, just in time to slit its throat. That's right, baby. We're killing the little calf, and we're going to watch it go limp in Grindelwald's arms, and then the blood is going to spill so that we can see the future events. I get grim and I get dark, but this is a franchise called Fantastic Beasts. And the very first thing that you're doing is a wholesale brutal slaughter of those beasts. And it's not even that you kill one of them right away. The one that you killed by slitting its throat on screen, then you go back and you bring it back to life so it can limp around in the third act and like bow and then be like a zombie thing and then die again on screen. Oh my God, did the Fantastic Beasts do do something to either J.K. Rowling or Steve Clovis, because this is a vendetta, or at least that's what it feels like, if not against the beast, then against the audience. And that's why I said I wanted to do a spoiler review for this movie, because it's not just that there are some weird things, because there are weird things in every movie, but there are so many really weird choices in this film. 
And these little calf things, I believe it's like a Chinese name. They call them like chillins in the movie or something like that. It is weird that a society or culture as advanced as the wizarding world is okay with going back to this thing of like, we have an important decision to make. Let's see what the small beast will bow to and that shall be our leader. And this is a very easily manipulated crowd because we have a guy who is pretty apparently evil despite the fact that the, the, the evil charges were dropped. I think a large number of people in the crowd would be pretty convinced that Grindelwald would not be a good leader and then the little calf bows to it and everyone's like yes we want Grindelwald and then somebody comes out and is like that's not a real cow this is the real cow and then it bows to somebody else and they're like no we want that person I gotta admit, wizards come off as kind of dumb in this movie. I mean, I get that it's sort of a metaphor because you're in the early 1930s or approaching it. So much of it is set in Germany, so you're making this uh, analogy to the rise of Hitler and the idea of populism, etc. I get it. It's just that I didn't think they would be so easily manipulated by tiny little creatures with their little hooves. And really this whole subplot was kind of a microcosm of the whole Fantastic Beast series for me because I, I thought it was really just kind of a mess. I felt like I needed a like bachelor's degree in wizarding politics to really understand what was going on. I'm sure there are some like hardcore Potter fans that knew immediately like, well, this is the International Wizarding Council and they're electing the new Grand Poobah and there's two people running. Well, but now there's three people running and this is going to be put up to a vote, but the people are going to vote. Well, no, no, actually the people aren't going to vote. It's going to be down to the animal it's an animal parade that will choose our leader it's just so scattershot and not well set up and not very well explained of all the things in this movie that reminded me of the messiness of the last movie the crimes of grindelwald it was this whole subplot, which is unfortunately a really big part of the movie. Okay, so let's talk about Credence because the big reveal at the end of The Crimes of Grindelwald is that Credence is actually the brother of Albus Dumbledore and his name is Aurelius Dumbledore and it's this huge family secret and he's got to go claim his birthright and everybody was like, what? Your brother seeks to destroy you. Aurelius. I guess technically it's not a cop-out with this movie, but it kind of is, right? I mean, this was either sort of a cheap trick to get people hooked at the end of the second movie, or J.K. Rowling just completely changed her mind, because we find out that Credence is not the brother of Albus Dumbledore. He is the nephew of Albus Dumbledore, who was sired by Albus Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth. We don't really know anything about that other than what they tell us, which is that, hey, he hooked up with a lady, and there was a kid, and that's the kid. I mean, I think the thing that frustrates me a little bit is that the Dumbledore family is so complicated. The family dynamics with Ariana and the sister and everything else. There are so many interesting ways I think that you could have brought Credence into the fold and had him be a part of the family other than just like, oh yeah, I hooked up with somebody and you know, he went away and anyway. It's all tell and no show and again, I think this goes to why Dumbledore and Grindelwald should be given their own series of movies. You could have gone deeper into that dynamic, maybe brought Aberforth in before this movie since he is so crucial into the backstory of Credence. Here it just seems like they're making it up as they go along again even if that's not actually the case that's what it seems like to me and it really seems like things change with credence as well because at the end of the first movie and then going into the second one it really seemed like he was supposed to be this like game-changing dude for Grindelwald. It's like, I've got to get Credence on my side because if I get Credence on my side, oh boy, I, victory is mine. He's the key to our victory. 
And then we get to this movie where he finally does have credence on his side, and he's basically just like a henchman. I mean, he gets some high-profile jobs, but he's just another guy that Grindelwald can push around. And now, given Ezra Miller's real-life issues off-screen, and we'll see what develops there, I think it's possible that we don't see credence again because we find out that he's really sick. He's apparently, like, right on the edge of death. He goes home with Aberforth, but I could see the fourth movie, if there is one, starting like, oh, credence went off to his home planet. He died last Last night, bummer, and there's just like a body with a sheet on it, and that's how we say goodbye to Credence. Again, it's not necessarily what the movie does, it's how this movie seems to have not really planned things out as it goes that makes Fantastic Beasts sit really weird in my stomach, especially when I think about the overarching story. So now we basically have what's being marketed as Dumbledore's first army, and this was when I kind of knew that maybe this movie was in a little bit of trouble. As the marketing kept progressing, they were showing more and more clips from old Harry Potter movies, and then like the last trailer was like, old Harry Potter movies, and then like people at the theme park and people watching the movies, and it's like you're putting fans in the trailer. It was like 60% just like, hey, Harry Potter's great, isn't it? Uh, anyway, there's a new Fantastic Beast movie coming out, but hey, remember how much you love Harry Potter? Well, they're trying to do a throwback to that with this whole Dumbledore's first army thing. Of course, we have Newt Scamander. This is nominally his series, although I think it would be funny if the Fantastic Beast that's on like the side of the title gets like shorter and shorter every time until finally you have to like whip out a magnet glass to see Fantastic Beasts next to the big text of like, you know, the trespasses of Umbridge or wherever we are by the fifth movie. So Eddie Redmayne's kind of over there waiting for his one or two scenes where he gets to be really funny and he is in this movie, but also kind of superfluous. And then we have Bunty, who is Newt's assistant. I like Bunty. She just came into the franchise in the last movie, but Bunty deserves a little bit better. And let's be honest, if you could sort of wipe away the family trees that J.K. Rowling has already established, I think that Bunty would be Newt's commander's new love interest. It's just that we already know like who Newt's kids are and who his grandkids are, so he has to end up with Tina. But in a perfect world, Bunty could maybe at least have a shot because they are way more compatible than Newt and Tina. I mean, I like Tina. We'll talk about her in a little bit. But Newt and Bunty are very much made for each other. Sadly, Bunty will not get her day in the sun. I also like Jessica Williams as Lally Hicks. I'm glad that they let her out of that book that she was trapped in in the last movie. That was a bizarre way to introduce her character. Then you gotta go. What? I haven't seen action in 200 years. I honestly think that if you take her performance and Dan Fogler's performance and then Eddie Redmayne's performance when he's doing a fun thing, you know, with like the scorpion things or whatever, that's the franchise that I think we missed out on. And I would really rather prefer to watch those films because especially with Jessica Williams in this movie, I kind of like this. Hey, I'm a sassy lady from the 1930s. What are you doing there, sweetheart? I liked what she was doing. It's just that it belonged in a much more fun and lighthearted film. I think we should actually spin off the Fantastic Beasts characters out of the Fantastic Beasts movies. So the other ones will still be called Fantastic Beasts, but they'll really be about Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And then take the actual Fantastic Beasts characters and put them into a different franchise. I know it's weird, but hey, it's the Wizarding World. Things are supposed to be weird. They're pooping on the floor and doing the magic wand things. J.K. Rowling made it weird, not us. We also have Newt's brother Theseus. You know, he's a good looking dude. Just kind of hanging around. Seems like a solid guy. 
And then we have Jacob, who's always along for the ride. In this movie, he gets a wand, or as I like to call it, a stick. And this is another thing. I know that the creatives in a movie don't always have control over the marketing, but the trailers and stuff made Jacob getting a wand look like this was going to be a huge event. Like, how can Jacob do magic? Is he secretly a wizard? Is there some kind of enchanted wand that he's given where he can now wield this power? No, they literally just give him a stick because they're like, well, you know, people might ask to see if you've got your stick. So here's a stick. It doesn't do anything, but, you know, just put it in your pocket, carry it around. Feel like a tough guy. It just seems like they were doing a big build up to Jacob getting a stick in this movie, and then he didn't really do much with it. I mean, I love at the end where he's talking to Dumbledore and he's like, Hey, can I keep this stick? And Dumbledore's like, I can't think of anyone better than you to have that stick. Well, yeah, it's just a stick. I mean, do wizards just walk around taking sticks out of muggles' hands? It literally does nothing. It is as functional as a wand that I can buy at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. It's actually more functional because if Jacob took his stick and walked up to a window at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios and like did that to the window, it wouldn't even do anything. So the stick that I can actually buy as a muggle in a world where magic does not exist is more functional than the stick that Jacob has in a world where magic does exist. Also part of the army is another returning character who is Yusuf, who I just think the movie had no clue what to do with because you have this whole sort of suspenseful thing of is he going to betray everybody or is he not? Except you don't see him through like the whole middle part of the movie. And then there's like a 10 second buildup where he's like walking up and you're like, oh, is he going to betray him? But then he doesn't. And that really wasn't a surprise because it was like, well, if he was going to betray them, then we would have seen some buildup to the fact that he's going to. But he doesn't. And everyone's like, ah, cool. It's Yusuf. What's up, man? The thing that I was thinking about, though, is unless I missed a line of dialogue somewhere, I guess Theseus at some point is going to have to sit him down and remind him that he had a sister because that was another very interesting story point that kind of went nowhere. The idea that Grindelwald completely extracts the memories of Yusuf's sister, Lita Lestrange, out of his head and it's just like, oh, and it goes away. Is he completely unaware that he even had a sister? I mean, that was kind of like his big motivation to do what he's going to do. That would have been a really cool, interesting question to answer but we had too many secrets of Dumbledore to reveal. So the master plan with Dumbledore's army uh, to defeat Grindelwald is to confuse him by making sure that nobody knows what's going on, which to me, I mean, 10% of me thinks that's just like a super meta joke, like the people that thought that uh, the Matrix Revolutions was like basically a big intentional F you to Warner Brothers to just cost them a lot of money. Maybe this was the same kind of thing. I don't really know. I don't really give the movie that much credit. I just think it is sort of a, a very a, a fitting setup that you have a plot to defeat the villain that involves nobody really knowing what's happening. But I guess it kind of works for this movie because honestly, like two thirds of it, nothing is really that consequential. It's just kind of a bunch of scenes stuck together, but nothing really sticks until the end of the movie when you get to Bhutan and the big animal selection ceremony, uh, Grindelwald, etc. And I think these last two Fantastic Beast films have just been sort of a shapeless blob of magic. I mean, I think that Steve Clovis came in and probably did what he could, and I could feel that sort of old school feel on some individual scenes, but when you look at the overall structure of the movies, they're kind of messy. And I think it probably goes down to the fact that you have J.K. Rowling writing the screenplays. And I'm not dissing her talent or her creativity here. I just think that writer is not necessarily a catch-all term. J.K. Rowling can write great Harry Potter novels, and they're like this thick. But when you have to condense all of that into a movie, it doesn't really seem to work so much. And it goes both ways. Steve Clovis, for example, is a brilliant screenwriter. He's adapted so many different novels 
but he's never written a novel because who knows, he may be a garbage novelist. We really don't know. I think it's important to keep in mind that back in December of 2018, right after the release of the second movie, J.K. Rowling said that she had finished writing the script for the third Fantastic Beast movie. And then a year later, just a few months before they were supposed to start shooting, before it got delayed due to the pandemic, they brought Steve Clovis on as a co-writer. And the movie itself says that it's written by J.K. Rowling and Steve Clovis based on a screenplay by J.K. Rowling. So I really do think that Warner Brothers read the screenplay and recognized that Maybe this really needs a little bit of work. They bring Steve Clovis in, and I think that he did what he could, especially in a lot of the character scenes, a lot of the Dumbledore scenes. We'll talk about the one that's at the very end of the movie here uh, in just a second. But overall, I just don't think that you could save the sort of formlessness of this film and that's really been my biggest problem with the last two. So we go to Bhutan for this big finale, and there were literally some sparks of life here because there's one magical battle scene, I think it's between Lolly and Theseus, where we actually see what a magic battle should look like. It's not just throwing sparks. Like, it seems like that's what all magic battles are, especially in the more recent movies, is just a bunch of wizards going like, pew, 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 pew. It's almost like a gunfight, and you just see, like, you know, sparks shooting everywhere. I love this scene because you have wizards that are, like, incorporated the environment there's the wizard that like gets put into the wall and you've got like you're whipping around and the, and the little you know glass uh, balls are flying around everywhere and it really does show you like what a magical battle could look like you even have the hogwarts books running around and like the monster book like chomping people it's whimsical it's magical it's different that's what these magic battles should look like that's one of the reasons why and i know that i'm super weird Order of the Phoenix is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Harry Potter films because I love that actual wizards duel between Voldemort and Dumbledore at the end of the film because it actually feels like what two wizards would do if they were dueling each other. The idea of sand and fire and turning it into glass, etc. I thought it was really interesting and well thought out. So more of that, please. Then we get to the big grand finale. We have the double election beat. And then we have probably the most consequential moment in this movie, which is the breaking of the blood pact between Dumbledore and Grindelwald so that they are now free to attack each other. I did like how they depicted the way that, you know, if you even think about betraying the other person, that blood pact would sort of like wrap itself around your arm and start strangling you. You really got that sense of menace. And then here it's broken but again, I wish that they had just gone into a little bit more of why that happened. Because you have Grindelwald who's trying to kill Credence, and you have the double spell from the two Dumbledore brothers, and they sort of meet in the middle, and then the thing just sort of breaks, and that's it. And then afterwards, we get this kind of conversation where Dumbledore's like, yeah, you know, he was trying to kill, and we were trying to protect, and... That did it. It just felt a little hand wavy to me for something so important. And again, it felt a little bit like they were just sort of tap dancing and making things up as they went. And this is a very important moment because the fact that you now have these two characters that are able to attack each other and fight each other fundamentally changes their relationship. I did like that moment where they're sort of one to one and that's not meant to be a double entendre. And you have this moment where they both, you know, touch each other's hearts and you see the this idea that like even though they can now or could now try to kill each other they're both not quite ready for that that was as beautifully painted as censors in foreign countries could potentially allow but even given that I liked that moment between those two characters because as much as you are highlighting their division I think you also have to showcase their closeness and their intimacy with each other because if we're gonna get to this final duel it has to actually mean something if it's just two middle-aged dudes whipping sparks at each other or doing that thing 
thing where two spells meet and it's like the Ghostbusters thing and they're like, you know, proton pack cross the streams. We've seen that before. This is all about the emotionality and the depth of it. And you have to get emotional with these characters at some point openly, not underneath the surface. So we're really setting things up for the next film. Grindelwald makes his escape. Dumbledore is now free to fight him and he has to go sort of figure out how he's gonna approach that mentally and emotionally. Aberforth and Credence go home. I suspect Credence may die an off-screen death. We'll see. And then we have a wedding. And listen, I love a wedding as much as anybody else. I got some friends that are getting married in a couple weeks. I can't wait to go. It's a beautiful thing to witness. But does anybody else think that Queenie got off a little too easy? I mean, listen, everybody makes oopsies. Everybody makes mistakes in their lives. But she was literally kind of right-hand person to the new wizard Hitler. I mean, how many people's minds did she read that Grindelwald then killed because of what she told him? And I'm not saying you should just throw Queenie in Azkaban because God forbid that would make these movies even darker. But I think you should also show a little bit more than her saying like, I changed my mind and yes to the dress. Regardless, we go to Queenie and Jacob's wedding. The gang is all gathering in the bakery, and we get our really only substantial scene with Tina in this movie. She'd been pretty much absent from the rest of the film because she was, um, let me check my notes on the movie here, um, busy. This movie is pretty much a mulligan for anything Newt and Tina related because she was not in the majority of the film. And I mentioned this a little bit in my non-spoiler review, but there is rampant speculation over why Catherine Waterston was not really in this film. A lot of it is focused on the fact that she was pretty much the only member of the Fantastic Beast cast that was unapologetically and unambiguously against the things that J.K. Rowling said and has said uh, about trans women in particular. And so a lot of people have said like, well, J.K. Rowling is a co-writer on the films. I think maybe there could be some retaliation there. I, I don't really know what the answer is to that. Whatever it is, uh, if it's an off-screen issue, if it wasn't just a weird creative decision, I hope that it gets resolved in some way, shape, or form because I do like Katherine Waterston in this part. She's obviously, from a story perspective, a big part uh, of the Fantastic Beasts franchise, but I also like her relationship with Nude. It's very sweet and it's kind of tentative, and I would certainly hope that a clash of ideologies off-screen uh, doesn't have the kind of impact where she's basically literally off the screen uh, for the rest of the films because she has a very important part to play. And then we get to the final scene of the movie, which I gotta be completely honest, I, it made me a little emotional. And that's because there was real heart behind it and some actual buildup from what we'd seen previously in the film. You have this wedding that's happening inside the bakery and then we have Dumbledore who is outside, literally outside looking in. And I think it was a great byproduct of what this movie did. And I think this movie treated Dumbledore probably the best out of any character. You understand his isolation and you understand that not only is he alone in many ways, he's kind of the maker of his own fate in that regard. He's not completely blameless in these conflicts that he has in his life. And so he's not just alone because he has great responsibilities and duties that he has to take care of. He's also alone because of the choices that he's made. And Jude Law plays that moment beautifully. And just this idea, this, this longing, the idea that he's probably lost the love of his life forever and not only lost him, but is going to have to either fight or kill him. I really love this moment. And it honestly felt like the last scene in the franchise like, if you were to show me that scene and ask me where in the Fantastic Beasts franchise that would go, I would say, 
Well, I think that that's probably the last scene of the fifth movie because you have Jacob and Queenie getting together. You have Newt and Tina sort of reconnecting and you understand that they're going to spend their time together. And then you have Dumbledore kind of walking off to face the rest of his life as this sort of a very famous figure, but also a very secluded figure. And I know we may never get the answer to this, but it kind of feels like that this movie was written to perhaps be the last film in the franchise if it's not a box office success. Because yes, we haven't gotten to the Dumbledore-Grindelwald duel yet, but we know the outcome of that duel. So it's not like we're not going to know what happens to these characters if there aren't any more movies. We have the happy ending for Queenie and Jacob. We know that Newt and Tina are going to have a happy ending. Credence's story is more or less wrapped up because unless they make a big change, we know what's going to happen to him. Aberforth and Credence have sort of reconnected, so we've closed that loop from this film. If there were no more Fantastic Beasts movies, there really aren't any plot threads that are unresolved. And I don't really know how to feel about that because if these really are the only three Fantastic Beasts films, then for me, they've largely been a failure just because of their lack of focus and lack of consistent storytelling. But at the same time, maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe they can spin off the Dumbledore Grindelwald stuff to its own movie and they can actually give Newt Scamander and the whole crew their own movie again. And you sort of branch off into these different directions. Something to keep in mind is that there is new management at Warner Brothers. Now They're now their own company. They've spun off from AT&T. They're now Warner Brothers Discovery. And so there are going to be changes. Basically, they could start anything over from the ground up. And a lot of times with this sort of regime change, you see that because nobody wants to be saddled with the failures of the previous group of people. They all want to start over and take credit for new successes. So it's going to be very interesting to me to follow the box office for this film. And it's kind of a mixed bag so far globally. We'll see how it does here domestically this weekend. But if this is a box office failure, then I think we could be at the end of the road, at least for this iteration of the Fantastic Beasts franchise. They say they were going to make five. Maybe they only make three. We're not going to know the answer to that question for quite some time, but there are plenty of other things to talk about in the meantime. What did you think of the movie? What were some of the things you liked? What were some of the things you had questions about? Am I being too hard on the secrets of Dumbledore? Let me know down in the comments below and be sure to check out the channel. On Monday, I will be doing a recap of the box office for the Secrets of Dumbledore. Also, I just brought back my podcast, All My Movies, which features Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first Wizarding World film. You can see that right now also here on the channel. And I'll be here with news and reviews and a lot of stuff movie and TV related. We're doing Moon Knight recaps, a lot of great stuff. Thank you so much for watching. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.